0: Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today.
1: Has a friend or family member ever told a story about an event you both attended, but it's nothing like how you remember it? Is there such a thing as historical truth? Unfortunately, because history is told by human beings with innumerable perspectives, the answer is most certainly a no. Today's show is an example of reconceptualizing the past after looking at sources from a different viewpoint. We deep dive on Alexander Hamilton with Jesse Philippi. This is Too Complicated for History. Thanks so much for being here with us today Jesse.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
1: Well, we're really excited to to have you here. We've we've read your work and before we get into that um I just want to ask you a little bit about your background. I know that your your schooling is in writing. And so how how did you get all mixed up with Alexander Hamilton and the Skylers,
2: Sure. So yeah, I have uh, my BA in English and MFA in creative writing. So not your traditional background uh, for getting into this field, but somewhere along the way during, I think my second year in graduate school, I decided to try an intern in the history field. So I did two internships and I called Schuyler Mansion because I was really interested in working there. And I was like, can I have an internship here? And they said, no, but we have a job opening. So that was infinitely better than an internship. Um, <laughs> That's what? No, but
1: we'll pay you. That's wonderful. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, I was pretty thrilled. So, you know, I honestly didn't know if I'd get hired because I had this English background, but here I am. Um, it all worked out. I've been there since 2017, and I have to say, I think having the writing background has helped me a lot um, because I can, you know, read, research, edit the same way. I just kind of switched it to a different field. Yeah, that sounds that sounds
1: great because I think that both Isaac and I have experienced this having to read a historical monograph that is poorly written is, you know, something that I had to deal with uh, throughout graduate school. And so having a historian who can write well is, is very much appreciated by, um, by your readers. And of course you have a a much greater audience with your recent work. And of course I'm talking about your article um, that's called an odious and immoral, a thing, Alexander Hamilton's hidden history as an enslaver. So first things first, can you tell us a little bit about what that article is about?
2: Sure. So the article is just a detailed but taken straight from the primary sources account of Hamilton's history with slavery in general, but also as an enslaver. And I highlighted the enslaver portion in the title because that gets the longest kind of part in the article. And I thought it was the most important part since like the first part I write about his history with slavery isn't something that a lot of historians are new with. Um, Like they have heard it before, but it was kind of the part about him as an enslaver that was new and I thought really needed to be pushed to the forefront where it wasn't new. It just wasn't really Uh, you know, talked about or looked for in the historical documents. So I wanted to push that to the forefront, but the article takes you through his history with slavery, trying to kind of debunk some of the more popular uh, myths out there just by going through primary source after primary source in hopefully a way that isn't know too boring uh but just kind of laying out the facts
3: (laughs) and just for our listeners to be aware of i'm sure that they're most people are like vaguely aware at least of hamilton as you know uh, and his reputation in anti-slavery movement and popular like the popular notions of him as an abolitionist um but in detail um uh, either lynn or you do you want to go through a little bit of what that popular narrative of him is, or like, what is the most recent narrative that has been embraced? Um, Cause he's, he's, it's pretty uh, specific.
1: Well, I'm going to, I'm going to hand that to Jesse. And I have to say that I know she's a big fan of Hamilton, the musical. And, I saw it on Broadway, too. So I'm right there with you. And I think that also has a part in the narrative. So I'm going to hand that off to her.
2: Definitely. Yes, I am a fan of the musical. (laughs) Um, And since, you know, we end up talking about it a lot at work, one of the things I always say is it's a great piece of art. And that's what I largely see it as and as a way to get people interested in history, which is great. That and... Other bio- and biographies on Hamilton really have led to this idea that he was an abolitionist and that he was totally against slavery. Some biographies do, like I say, kind of admit to the fact that he was selling people to relatives, to friends, uh, that he was acting as a lawyer in certain cases. But They still say he was an abolitionist, mostly leaning on the fact that he was a member of uh, the New York Manumission Society, which a lot of people were, and most of them enslaved people. So it's not saying too much. Um, So the most of the
3: members enslaved people. Not most of the members were enslaved people. Just yes, sorry, thank
2: you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) most of the members were enslavers. um, Even the founder John Jay. So. It wasn't, uh, you know, he was not alone in that fact. It doesn't really speak to him being an abolitionist. And the musical really bolstered this idea of him being an abolitionist. And that wouldn't even necessarily be true in his, you know, even if he was not an enslaver, as a member of the New York Manumission Society who is a manumissionist, which I know is getting into like kind of history lingo there, but (laughs) um, that's something we talk about at work too.
3: Yeah. Well, so the difference between uh, abolition and manumission, manumission would be me as an enslaver freeing the people that I own versus abolition, which is uh, some sort of like law or directive from the government or state or whatever to be like, no one can own people anymore correct just to clarify
2: oh yeah and you know the new york manumission society was all about gradual manumission even and i always kind of frame that in the sense that the members of the society were doing it in a way that it wouldn't really have any impact on them down the line
3: yeah it's almost like the the things that they wanted to put forth the plans were so gradual that no one would actually feel anything ever. Exactly. <laughs> was, you, you don't even want to notice it's happening. But we want it to happen, but not have any consequences. Right. So, <laughs> now, we, was that true of all? Because um, I know there's other abolitions or manumission and abolition societies in the colonies at the time. Was that true of all of them? Or was the New York Manumission Society different in a, in a significant way from like you know ones in Philadelphia or Pennsylvania and, and other states?
2: I actually don't know about that. I don't know if Flynn wants to speak to it. That's a great question that I do not know the answer to.
1: Good question, Isaac.
3: Well, yeah, the only reason, so me being the non-historian in the room, I, I feel like I say that once in an episode. Um, I think that there is a, and I apologize for my cat meowing in the background, which is also happening. Um, at least in states where, uh, you know, and the anti-slavery movement was a little bit more fervent, you know, P- Pennsylvania being full of Quakers. Who you know by the 1780s were more interested and pushing for abolition, manumission, and all those kinds of things. It's a slightly different environment than New York,
1: and it would depend on the members as well. Because if if you know, because from what I understand from your article, Jesse, it's sort of political versus personal um, beliefs, and if you do things for yourself, if you do things for what you believe is the good of something, the country or your state versus political expediency.
2: Absolutely.
3: My favorite claim that you talk uh, that, about Hamilton specifically, just generally uh, about him being an abolitionist is like, oh, he grew up in the Caribbean. Therefore, he would have seen how terrible it was because he was a good person and he would have seen people suffering. It's just no offense to anyone who's written that in a book. <laughs> but the amount of conjecture is staggering. When I, I don't know, are there any primary sources to back up that uh, that concept?
2: Not that I found, and I spent a really good amount of time looking for them because that was in almost every book on him that I was reading, and I was like, "Well, it's got to be somewhere then." And it just was not. It was all speculation.
3: Yeah, it's almost as if we, uh, the people writing supplanted themselves into that scenario and we're like, well, if I was a boy and saw this, then I would go up clearly to hate it. But were you able ever to find the root of it, like where that dead end began, like where that condition started? Or what was the oldest reference to it that you could find, if you Can-
2: remember? That's a good question. I can't remember if it was in the first ever biography on him by his son. Um, I don't know if he... Addresses that or not, but I definitely was reading it in 20th century biographies, which usually early ones kind of take their cue from the 19th century biography. So I wouldn't be shocked if it started at some point in the 19th century, but I don't know if I ever got to the source or if someone just decided one day that that must have been the case.
3: I'm just looking at who to point fingers at. <laughs> I want to know who to blame for all of this misconceptions <laughs> because he in particular, I found at least I've sort of, you know, going through only recently starting to work in the history field myself, there's more conjecture about him than I think any other founding father. He seems to be, and it might be because he's like the guy du jour because of the play. And, and I've only started working in this area since that really became popular, but I've heard, wild stuff like multiple times on twitter and on social media people are like hamilton was black he was jewish uh which i I can't tell if it's sort of like based in like anti-semitism and like because of the banking stuff or whether it's just like hey he's not a normal white guy um like but there seems to be just a lot of like stuff just kind of thrown around about him and why is he particularly special like that like i don't know what is the does he stand out amongst the founding fathers in a particular way that makes him more susceptible to that kind of thing? Or,
2: um, my kind of take on it would be that it's because of the musical. I don't know what I've heard is before the musical, maybe Lynn will know more about this, is that it would kind of flip flop between him and Jefferson, who was more popular in, uh, you know, kind of pop culture or the history world. And I think with the musical, Hamilton
1: So sorry for the interruption, but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors. Yeah, I feel like before the musical, Hamilton was known for his duel. I feel like that's what most people thought of when they thought of Hamilton. And it seems like since the musical... A lot more people have a feel that they have a personal connection with Hamilton, so they almost get defensive if you say something that they perceive as negative, even if it's historically correct. Have you seen that in visitors to uh, the Schuyler Mansion? Are individuals changing? Are they, you know, what are they coming? What kind of knowledge are they coming with?
2: Yeah, I have to say... I've been really fortunate. And from what I hear from my coworkers, we kind of all have been fortunate in that we get people coming because of the musical, or sometimes because of a historical fiction book they've read. Sometimes it is the Chernow biography, especially, that brings people there. But they usually come with a pretty open mind. And I have to say, shout out to the kids and young adults because they really come with open minds and questions and are really eager to learn. Um, but I really haven't run into anyone being really upset when I talked about you know Hamilton as an enslaver or even just other facts from you know the musical that aren't correct. Like one of the most common ones is Angelica and Hamilton. Did not have an affair, um, mm. which some people are kind of sad about. Um, other people are—it's <laughs> <laughs> um, juicy, <laughs> it is. And I always say we got a great song out of it, so I'm not complaining. Um, it's true. Yes, you know, it's true. Satisfied, it's <laughs> a great number. But um, you know, people are there to learn, and we used to run a focus tour just on Hamilton, and sadly, we've had to uh, kind of shelve it with COVID, and I'm hoping. I know once it's safe again, it's going to come back out, but I know we all have no idea when that'll be. Uh, But in that tour, we would actually bring out primary source cards and ask people to read them to the group. And it just got so much good discussion and really a lot of people with open minds. So I feel like we've been lucky compared to what I hear about some other sites.
3: That's interesting.
2: That's heartwarming to hear.
3: Yeah. (laughs) So when you went into. Like how did the so the, your article just to walk through the timeline of it when you first had the idea to do it is that because you were you know looking over these primary sources and you're like hey wait a minute this kind of tells a story that's a little bit different or were you, you like I really want to you went out searching for the the documents that justified that that article what what came first the chicken or the egg.
2: <laughs> so, um, one of the big reasons I wanted to work at Skylar Mansion is because of the work they were doing about slavery and the people, the Skylar's enslaved in particular. So when I started working there, that was the research I joined in on right away. And that, you know, Skylar has a lot of documents and Unlike a lot of the founding fathers, no one edited his, which is great for historians. Uh, it also means we have a lot to go through. So as we were going through that, I was like, what about his kids? You know, did they enslave people when they were adults? Did they disagree? So I started with the sons and I was like, wow, I skipped the daughters. You know, what's wrong with me? So <laughs> I, um, I decided. <laughs> so um. <laughs> Cause for those who don't know, the sons, the three sons are in the middle. There's the famous three daughters first. Um, so I went back, and I wasn't sure who to start with, but one of my former co-workers, Danielle Funicello, had written two posts on our site blog, putting forward the question about Hamilton and slavery, but never found an answer. So I thought, oh, I'll just write part three. you know, this will be interesting, it will kind of bring it to a conclusion, right? Well, you know, wrong. It took two years. Um, <laughs> and it was not a, a blog post at that point. But um, it kind of came out of me being interested in what uh, Philip and Catherine Schuyler's children did. You know, did they enslave uh, people? Were they against it? So after seeing her blog post, I thought, I'll pick it up from here. And I went into it hoping he didn't but I've found otherwise, as we know.
3: I'm curious if he, like, the reason why people want him to be an abolitionist is because they see a reflection of current day America in Hamilton's vision. Because I would say that, you know, I guess current the way America currently runs is a little bit more Hamiltonian than it is Jeffersonian. You know, there's large concentrations of power in in, you know, urban centers, banking, and financial institutions are have like an immense important role. That we want the abolition to be part of our founding story. We're you know, and people are sort of stretching wherever they can to try to find it. And he was the ob- obvious, you know, he's an immigrant. Um, he was a member of the society. Either he didn't, you know, own a plantation, which many of the other founding fathers, all the Virginians did. Um, I'm curious if that's the case. And if that's the case, why doesn't anyone like Adams? Because <laughs> he would be the more obvious choice.
2: <laughs> I was just thinking about him when you were talking about that. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I I, I realized true. I was, he was also an option, but I was like, oh, nobody likes that guy anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious what you think about that idea that, you know, people are, you know, w- want to atone for, for, you know, the, the wrongs of our country and kind of make it so that no, they knew, look, there were, there were the people there that understood how bad this was.
2: Yeah. I think. For a while, people have wanted to find that in Hamilton. And maybe, like you said, it is because he uh, was an immigrant. Um, he had a bit a different background from the other founders. And maybe because he was a New Yorker and had so much to do with, like you said, founding how the country's running today. And then with the musical, I just think it's because a lot of people identified with his story. And, you know, I think about Adams often. I'm like, we've just pushed him to the side um but you know he could <laughs> kind of fit that role but i understand why his personality people might not be as willing to embrace i think he's funny um but you know i do too um, jesse i'm right there with yeah. you yeah, <laughs> um, but hamilton thing,
3: could be gallant that's like slightly different yeah. <laughs> than what you're looking it's at true. i don't know if anyone. <laughs> I don't know if if, yeah. if Adams is going to be the center of a musical at any point in time.
1: <laughs> Here's hoping. Put that out in the universe. Put that idea out there.
3: <laughs> it would just be a mid-century American play of a married couple arguing in a living room for two and a half hours. It would just be him and Abigail. <laughs> Just complaining about each other for an extended period of time and then making up at the end because they really do love each other.
2: I would see that, honestly.
1: I would see it too. Every historian would probably see it.
3: (laughs) What's that old? What's one of these days, Alice? Bang, zoom, straight to the moon. Like there's an old sitcom. (laughs) The guy's always threatened to send his wife to the moon. I feel like that's a little bit, a little bit of like the Adams's. Yeah, the honeymooners. Yes. That's it. (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Oh, our, our our producer Pat just sent us a note. Says you could call it the Adams family. Ha ha! Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Tricked people into going to see it, thinking something very different. So, given the that it's it's interesting that you went in with you know not wanting to find, but you know the historical. Did you feel any conflict in publishing this kind of thing? Or you were, you know, you were sort of, your mission is to get the truth out there, like based on those primary sources. Did you feel any internal, like when you found out, you are like, oh no, like when you see <laughs> the signature on the transaction page, you're like, oh man, like is that, did you, what emotionally, what was that like?
2: Yeah. So I guess the reason I went into it hoping he did not enslave people wasn't so much because of the musical or, you know, Personally, I don't identify with him, and maybe that's because I'm a woman. I don't know why, but I just don't want people to have enslaved people in general. Um, so I was hoping that, you know, people were right about him. But when I found what I found, I was like, people have to know. And I didn't feel any conflict about it. I wasn't worried about it. Um, I just felt like because I had found this, it was more important than you know, anything I felt to put the truth out there. And I didn't kind of anticipate what would happen, but I also wouldn't change anything because it's worth people knowing. Um, So yeah, I, I felt there were certain parts of it where it was just really heartbreaking to read about, you know, once I found some more personal things about the people he enslaved, it was just heartbreaking. And it was, hard to, you know, write at times, but I think it was important for people to know. What I love so much
1: about your article is that you're not necessarily uncovering this treasure trove of new sources, but you're taking sources that historians have looked at, historians have used, but they've looked at them in a different context or in a different way than you have. And I think it's so important for understanding how we write our history and the importance of who the individual is and how they look at sources. So you're taking sources that, you know, famous historians have looked at and have come to different conclusions. And so, first of all, I mean, I would love if you could share maybe one story of of a source that you found and how you read it differently than maybe, you know, previous historians, um, just to just to show how a different perspective can really change the narrative of, of our
2: history. Yeah, absolutely. So I just have to say that I went, the reason I think I was able to do that is because of what I've been doing with my coworkers about Philip and Catherine Schuyler's. We were going back over sources that, you know, the site's been open for over a hundred years. So people have read those sources and I kind of learned from that how to do this. And with Hamilton, there are a few documents that people had kind of put into the category of he was selling this person to another person, which I always say, that's horrible too. Um, You know, I, I don't understand how people are justifying that but that's another thing um so i think one of the the main pieces i found and one of the earlier pieces was a letter from him to i want to say it's clinton um and he's writing to him saying that they've had believe he only refers to her um a woman of mrs clinton and The specific wording of it is really what kind of historians, I think, get into arguments over. And this is something we used on the Hamilton tour. And I would give both sides to the tour group and kind of present my reading of it versus the reading of other historians. And I wish I could remember the exact wording, but I basically argued that the specific use of words in kind of the context of how Hamilton writes in general he was saying that he had purchased her from Clinton from Mrs. Clinton it seems in this case for Eliza whereas other historians argued that they had the Clintons had basically sent her to work for the Hamiltons and now she was returning to the Clintons and that he was thanking Clinton basically but to me, the wording just didn't line up for that. And also the timeline, it kind of made more sense that he would be sadly purchasing an enslaved person. He and Eliza were starting their married life. It all lined up in that sense. But ultimately, I use the wording as kind of the basis for my argument. And it's been read very differently by other historians. So I think that was one of the main ones that was up for debate.
3: So speaking of that, I don't want to dwell on it too much really, but could you describe in like sort of like larger terms? Like, so you publish this thing, this thing gets published and what happens afterwards, if you don't mind describing that a little bit.
2: Yeah. So I really thought I'm going to publish this. It will probably get attention in like what I call the local history world, like the Albany history circle that I'm very familiar with and maybe a bit of attention beyond that. But you know, how would people even find it? Um, and I was wrong. Um, I (laughs) always say I was a bit naive about the whole thing. Um, A local reporter who was really, really kind called and asked to just do a story on it. She just wanted to write about the fact this article had been written. And she had covered a lot of uh, historical homes and similar things. And then other larger uh, newspapers started calling. And that's when it kind of blew up into something that I Truly did not expect to happen. Looking back, I absolutely should have. And I think everyone around me kind of knew this would happen. But I, like I said, I was a bit naive. Um, And then, you know, (laughs) it it kind of played out uh, really quickly from there. And I was, um, I guess, surprised by the amount of tension it got. But then putting in the context of, uh, the Hamilton Musical. And I think where we were are as a country, it started to make a lot of sense to me that it would get that level of attention. Um, but, you know, to me, I was just, you know, a girl at a historic site who wrote this piece. It got published by the historic site. And, you know, a lot of uh, publications are put on, like these, you know, PDFs are put on historic sites' websites and they don't get, that much attention, so that was kind of what I thought would happen. Um, but it did get attention online. Um, I did have to deal with some of the backlash online uh, personally, but I did have the backing of everyone at work, um, both you know the people I work with every day, and um, some of the amazing people in the New York State Bureau of Historic Sites were reaching out to me, and then on Twitter, a lot of people started reaching out, just messaging me and saying, Hey, I see what's going on. You know, if you want to talk, I'm here. And uh, especially Alexis Co. really, I can't thank her enough for what she did for me. Um, And it turned into a positive experience in the fact that more people came together and supported the article and me than didn't. Um, So I, you know, I believe humanity is good ultimately, and uh, (laughs) um, that kind of changed my, you know, went from being a kind of uh, scary experience at first, learning how mean the online world can be to uh, being something positive.
3: So sorry for the interruption, but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors. I, I think it's a pretty unique experience. Very few people delve into the deep darks of the Internet and come out with a positive <laughs> affirmation about the state of, uh, of people. Um, but yeah, it, got, it, it was um, that's how I think we became aware of it. Right, Lynn? Like it mm-hmm. w- it, it, we we um were in the process of developing this other project, and Hamilton right. actually sort of our work w- around Hamilton and Hamilton surrounding abolition timed out with that sort of wave of it getting. It was a little bit after it was published, right? But it, yeah, there were there were people going back and forth, and I, if anyone hasn't checked it out, history Twitter is a remarkable thing uh, for any listeners that haven't checked like gone on or aren't on twitter or aren't aware of history twitter it's its own little subset of historian. all the historians follow each other and there's a lot of back and forth that goes on there and and you wouldn't be aware of it if you're not sort of dialed in if you're not following the right people but it's worth checking out if you're not on there
1: historians love to debate so it, it is what we do <laughs>
3: Yeah, I can't imagine what attracts them to the worst possible platform for debate <laughs> <laughs> that's ever been created. In the history Anyone who the asks village. a
1: historian to keep it to a certain number of words, they're, <laughs> they're asking a lot.
3: Um, but that's great. So it was ultimately an encouraging experience. That's very cool.
2: Yeah, no, I feel uh, fortunate that it turned out that way. Um, and I wouldn't really change it because ultimately, the message was what was most important to me. Um, And if that's what had to happen for people to read the paper, then that's what had to happen. I did actually meet a visitor at work. Um, Every time someone told me they read the paper, I was like, oh my gosh, really? No, thank you. (laughs) Um, Because I was so surprised every time. And she told me she read it because of some of the things she had seen. I don't know if online or in the newspapers, but that's what brought her to reading it. So, you know, it was worth it then. So
1: all, what is it that all press is good press or? All... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it exactly. got it out there, right? And it, it's nice to hear that there is, there is a supportive community, particularly with, with younger scholars. I think that that's nice to hear and that it exists on Twitter. As well, despite what you might see (laughs) posts on History Twitter.
3: (laughs) Well, it's an interesting thing. And it isn't, I understand you saying you were naive about the process, but I do think that there are some growing pains whenever, you know, a a counter narrative is introduced. Because like you were saying before the play, Hamilton and Jefferson kind of like flip-flopped back and forth between who's popular. And we, we don't, I think when we're thinking about, oh, what is their national history? The narrative at any given moment feels static. Like right now, thinking about what the story of the United States is, it feels like this sort of rigid thing. Uh, but uh, it's always true that that's not the case. And it's always sort of fluid and evolving and, and, and work like yours, this happens all the time. We just don't even realize that it's happening unless you're sort of like in that community. That's where, where the sort of the argument takes place. <laughs> yeah, because uh, one of the things that we are sort of one of the ideas that we're kind of exploring in this show overall is how what gets sort of left out of the history books.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And, and yours is a perfect example of that in that these were sources that people had seen. It was stuff that had been edited or, or sort of contextualized in a way that didn't necessarily tell the whole story. Now, are you doing more work on on Hamill? Are you, you are you skewering him again? <laughs> <Are you> gonna, <laughs> you, he's been um, tarred. Are you going to feather him now? What's <laughs> the plan?
2: Oh, um, you know, I think a lot of people are surprised to hear I I've left him behind. Um, I didn't I didn't intend to write. You know what. I wrote, honestly, I, like I said, I thought I was writing a third blog post. Um, I am ultimately very interested in writing about, um, slavery within the Schuyler family and the people they enslaved. And that kind of is what I just went back to after, um, that was published and everything. Um, it, I will say winter is kind of like the research writing season at work. Um, so while we do, and we have published a few things over the summer, um, our our blog can get a little quiet, but then come winter, we're like, here's everything um, we've been working on. <laughs> so um, I wrote about a woman named Silva, who was one of the people the Skyler's enslaved. Her and her three children were only some of seven people who were manumitted after Skyler's death and not in his will, but by his sons and sons-in-law. And I wrote about trying to find where did she go after she was manumitted. And it was, you know, obviously different from my piece about, uh, Hamilton, but that was the type of research I was doing before. And then even during, uh, the Hamilton stuff.
3: Very cool.
1: Can you talk a little bit about your, you know, these primary sources that you get to use? Because I know that, uh, at least for your Hamilton article, you used ledger pages and used financial documents, and I know I I worked on George Washington's financial documents, and most people would you know wouldn't get through a page before they'd just glaze over because <laughs> they don't look that interesting. But when you really start digging into them, you can find an amazing amount of information.
3: Now, just before to clarify before we start, uh, uh, can we define <laughs> primary and secondary sources just for anyone in the audience oh. that might not know what the difference is?
2: Uh, Sure. Yeah. Primary (laughs) source um, is something that is, I always say, written within the time period um, by someone who's there who has witnessed it. And it can be like a ledger book, a letter. Um, It can be basically anything that was written by someone living in that time period. Whereas a secondary source is basically like the biographies we've been talking about that use those primary sources and bring them together, uh, try to expand upon them, but are ultimately not written by people within the time period.
3: Cool. Yeah. So, just for, okay. <laughs> just for my own clarity's cool. sake.
2: Oh yeah. Hopefully I did. Okay, I knew
3: the difference before they, I, 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 I knew <laughs> what they were before that. I was just asking for all of you people out there. <laughs> so, sorry. Sorry. Um, Continue on.
2: <laughs> yeah. I feel like, uh, the cash books sound really boring, um, at first. And if you're not interested and really like fascinated by what you're researching, then they absolutely are. Um, I had to read them multiple times and I am grateful. He has good handwriting Skyler. His handwriting is horrible. So, (laughs) um, I'm glad Hamilton had some good handwriting, but, um, it's, Actually, really interesting because when I describe this to people, I say, you know, I found out some of the charities he donated to, uh, you know, when he purchased a bed, um, what accounts he was keeping as a lawyer, um, what kind of the usual pay he got for just giving an opinion to somebody. So it's fascinating, you know, from any perspective to go in there and look for something. And it's basically for Hamilton. I don't want to say the only, but maybe the only um, source that is completely unedited. Uh, nobody, you know, why would you think to edit a cash book, honestly? Um, so it was the most honest. And that ended up being a really large portion of what I use because it just gave me the facts without, uh, you know, anyone scribbling things out or trying to change things.
3: This, Lynn, did you have... The experience of wanting to believe, like when you're reading a letter, so not a tax cash book or mm-hmm. some other ledger. or, or and uh, Jesse you speak to this too of wanting to believe it, because you know the, the letter, like a letter is written. I mean, like oh yeah, like they're just being honest because it feels like a letter. It's not a person. Like you're not thinking that like oh Washington is deceiving this human being that he's writing to potentially or like omitting something or uh, absolutely.
1: And I think that now, honestly. So with social media, it almost makes it easier to explain how authors at the time were thinking about their audience. When I do, when I speak to teachers, I'll work at the Mount Vernon Teachers Institute. I'll say to them, you would put something very different as a Facebook status, as you would talk to a friend over drinks. You know, you have to consider the audience. And there were also things in the ledger books that I was horrified to read and hoping that, you know, I was misreading them or, but it's something you just sort of, you have to accept that they, they were human beings and, you know, they made mistakes and and stupid decisions, just like we all do. I assume.
3: It makes sense that the account books are the most honest. I mean, how do they take down al capone tax fraud like that's it's always the money (laughs) it's like the is the best way to find out what a person's actually doing
1: and i don't know i don't know if if the hamilton if they're ledger books because i know they're also um they're called memorandum books which are sort of like your receipts from stores (laughs) so so in george washington's he would say i gave some money to a guy on the street and he would write that in that book. And it was sort of, you know, much, much more detailed than the ledger book where it's just very, you know, businesslike. So were there different types of ones uh, in your research as well?
2: So I really only use the two that are digitized by Library of Congress um, in their Hamilton papers. And they call them cash books, but mm. they are the type that really expand upon things. He was really detailed. Some things he was annoyingly not detailed with, um, but most things he did give the details for. So it was interesting to read in that sense.
1: Were there any things that you were particularly surprised about or any kind of stories that you hurried up and and told your friends about when you found (laughs) them that day?
3: Like, well, oh, no, he or, really, or am
1: I the only one who does that?
3: <laughs> he, 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 uh, he really loved cheesecake, didn't he? Got it every Sunday. <laughs> what a weirdo.
2: <laughs> I love that. Um, you, uh, I mean, in the office, we're constantly like yelling to each other, like, come here. I just found this thing. You know, you're not going to believe it. Um, And with his cash books, I think one of the things this would be under the category of that frustrated me was I think it was every week. I could be wrong. Maybe it was every month. He was just giving money to Eliza. And it would just say like money to, I forget. I don't think he called her his wife, like to Eliza. And I was like, for what? You know, what? Because to me, that's very interesting. I want to know the details of the food she's buying. And I kind of got to see it in a roundabout way. Um, This isn't in the cash book, but I was reading a letter her father wrote to her and on one part of it i it had to be eliza just was using it as a grocery list and i was like this is amazing i forget what the letter was even about because she was writing out like she was going to get mutton i think like peaches were on there and i'm like this is what i'm looking for <laughs>
3: That's so funny. No offense, but you guys are nerds. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean that in the best no, way. I just, think I just think it's very funny. Not that I don't find that interesting. I, I, I've i come to be fascinated by all of this stuff, but I, just imagining someone in 100... I have a post-it note on my desk that just says, kids back at school, remote capabilities, f- felt like I didn't have anything to do on it. I have no idea what this is for. <laughs> Oh, what the reference was, but if, imagine if someone finding this in two hundred fifty years and being like, "My God, I finally understand the man." <laughs> it would be uh, hilarious to me. Like you are like, oh, she wrote her grocery list on the back of a napkin. I'm like, oh, thank goodness, the Holy Grail.
2: <laughs> you know, yeah, it does take I think a really special, enthusiastic type of person to be excited by that. <laughs>
3: No, it's fantastic because otherwise we wouldn't get to glean these things because this is where these are the things where, you know, like, like Lynn was saying, people were honest. It's like, oh, you know, you wouldn't have found out about the murder if you didn't buy the gun and you had the receipt for it. You know, like <laughs> no one's going to say like, hey, True. in their diary, like planning to kill the dude, went and bought bullets yesterday. But <laughs> yeah, well, you might find the cash receipt and that's how you can sort of piece the puzzles together. Um I'm not, exactly. this is just a, a fictitious metaphor. I'm not alluding to anything in particular, despite the fact that Hamilton died in a duel. <laughs> the-
2: <laughs> oh,
3: but uh, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And just fascinating that at like, something as simple as a grocery list could be very exciting and informative.
2: Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, especially with, I have to admit, I would have gotten excited about that with any of the Skylers, but (laughs) Eliza in particular is kind of a bit of a mystery for the first half of her life. So to see something that she likely wrote that is just so ordinary um, and didn't get destroyed as like, A window into her life, finally. She was having mutton. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And peaches. (laughs) And peaches, it's great.
1: (laughs) Well, I I think that, you know, sort of what we're getting to is what, you know, you have the history, that's the big things. You have the wars, you have the politics. But but historians, especially like us with our specialties, we want to know, you know, what they wore, what they were eating. We want the everyday stuff. And I think that's what allows people to relate to to these individuals you know i've never really related to alexander hamilton honestly i'm not sure if i, I still if i do but hearing these things about you know eliza she's becoming more of a person to me and we sort of talked about the idea of, of when history feels real and when it feels like another another world another isaac had a good uh, description of history as reality.
3: Yeah, we were talking, yeah, it was the, before the advent of video and photographs and things like that, like all of it feels a little bit like a fiction. Like it feels like it wasn't real. Um, like if you pre-Civil War, I guess somewhere around there when they first like photographs start first started becoming relatively available, where like the Crusades and Lord of the Rings kind of occupy the same space in my head. <laughs> they both feel like fantasy when I, I know intellectually that one happened, actually, but they don't. I, they're, they're they're not as far apart as you would otherwise like. Um, but bringing someone to life, like you're saying, does sort of makes them more relatable. It brings them into my. I'm not having mutton today. I don't eat. Lamb, but uh, the, <laughs> <laughs> I, but I have in the past, so there you go, me and Eliza, <laughs> two peas in a the pod
2: there you go. <laughs> I really like that um that metaphor, and just like I get that a lot at work. People ask questions about who they were as people, and they often at the end of the tour, will say, I never liked history, you know, because of the way it was taught in school, but now I'm really interested because it was made personal and that's honestly my favorite part of it too because in my other life I'm a writer so I'm very much drawn to the personal and uh, yeah, I think that's the great thing about history.
3: <laughs> I actually think you might I might take it a step farther and than, than what you were saying, Lynn, it makes it more accessible but I do think that understanding who, there's both like oh this stuff was uninteresting, but it's also these details about people are inconvenient for the larger sort of romanticized narratives of people. Like the smaller details oftentimes contradict those sort of grandiose ideas of who these people were. Like uh, a modern example of it is I don't know if you know any of the like the internal history that North Korea writes about uh, uh, Kim Il Sung, the founder of the of the dynasty the Kim dynasty mm. and and Kim uh, Jong-il never went to the bathroom. Um, <laughs> he shot like a seven on a golf course one time, um, which would, which would mean, necessitate <laughs> you hitting like 14 holes in one, like, like an ups, abs- like, <laughs> like at least 12 holes in one, like it was an absurd, uh, but you know, they make him non-human and that's how you sort of perpetuate that mythology. Whereas, you know, humanizing someone like Hamilton or founding, any of the founding fathers does kind of, Makes it it reduces the latitude that people have to make crap up about them for whatever purpose that may be, like because it might sell a play or or it might get people in the seats, or because it might you know work for someone politically to kind of recontextualize uh, a historical figure. Um, but knowing who these people are with primary sources like you're talking about, you know that's you know no one can say go around saying that Eliza was a vegetarian, obviously. <laughs> 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 because of because of that particular grocery list, um, <laughs> incredibly unlikely. Uh, so I actually think it serves both a humanizing thing and a, a very practical. Um, it adds a lot of historical value beyond the details themselves. At least that's how I see it personally. Um, which is very you know, the work that you're doing is super cool.
1: I, I agree. It's it's both both your research and just your work at the Schuyler House. You know, interacting with the public. I think you're. What you're doing is is really important, and maybe filling in where where our school days uh, maybe left off or left out.
2: Oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, I really I love my job, um, and I I'm really happy. I'm actually a really shy, quiet person, so I think most of my teachers would be very shocked at the job I have right now because <laughs> I did not talk in class ever. Um, but I just love interacting with the people who come through and, you know, sometimes they teach me. Um, It can go both ways.
3: Speaking of the Schuyler House, just to wrap it up, uh, mostly because I would like to encourage all of our listeners to go visit if you're ever. (laughs) um, Where exactly is it? Just to...
2: Yeah, so uh, we're Schuyler Mansion State Historic Site in Albany, New York. um, And we are open typically mid-May through the end of October. So if you want to visit, just give us a call, make a reservation. We'd love to have anyone.
3: Yeah. And no matter where you are in the country, there are small historical organizations like this everywhere that are doing you know, the, the kind of work that Jesse was just talking about doing and getting down to the nitty gritty where that larger institutions just aren't able to do they're not well suited? The Smithsonian is not well suited to do this kind of work. It's too large. Uh, It's not specific enough. But do you, so? Would you say that that institutions like the Schuyler House are like a what we? What value do they bring to the historical community? Just to I'm trying to pitch them like for people to go and looking <laughs> at, like to go to their local historical society and see the, the things that are around their house because no matter what town you live in in America, there's probably one within an hour and a half drive of you.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean just personal experiences at work is, um, you know, we get visitors from all over the world, but with Hamilton, it did come, the tour came locally at one point and we just started getting so many local visitors who are like, I never knew this was here. And we're excited to interact with the history around them. And we're really excited about the level of work being done. I think sometimes there is, Misconception that the only thing that happens at historic homes like these is you know tours and the history isn't kind of uh, kept, I guess, up to date, which sounds a bit weird because you know we think of history as being in the past, but as we've been talking about this whole episode, it's constantly being revisited. Um, and I think people are pleasantly surprised to find that at historic homes. And I've had so many people say to me, oh, if you're ever in this state, you got to go here or here. And um, I think that kind of speaks for itself that people are out and about exploring these places and whether or not they live near them, uh, they're incredibly valuable to them.
1: Absolutely. That's a great pitch. I'm I'm a big fan of historic sites and I know they don't get a lot of money. They don't get a lot of support. And so... The support they really get is from the American public and uh, individuals visiting who are able to go and to support people like you who do this amazing research and you know yours thankfully became nationally, if not internationally known um, but there are a lot of stories out there that may not get that coverage that are really important to to a town or to who we are, you know as a nation as as individuals. And so I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of historic sites.
3: Yeah. So go, I don't know where you are. You listening right now in your car in traffic on the way to work, go stop where you're going. Take the day off, turn around, head home, not home to someone else's home, a historical home.
2: Somewhere, (laughs) I support that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, as we berate our audience, I just want to thank you so much, Jesse, for joining us today. We had a really great conversation. Hope you enjoyed it.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun, and I'm I'm so glad I got to come on and talk with you.
1: This this was wonderful, and you know, for people who want to read your article or who maybe just want to learn more about what you're researching, is there some website they should go to, or how can they? How can they find more
2: of you online? Um, So if you want to read my article, uh, if you go to Schuyler uh, Mansion State Historic Site's uh, landing page on the New York State Parks uh, website, scroll down and it is a PDF there. If you want to read our other research, we have our own blog. I always say just Google Schuyler Mansion blog and it'll come right up. We have social media accounts, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, if you want to find me, I am mostly on Twitter, uh, personally. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, just searching my name will probably bring it on up there. But um, yeah, I I always encourage people to check out uh, all of the mansion accounts too, because we kind of get to take you to places that we might not get to on tour, literally, uh, like the attic and basement. Um, So (laughs) check those out um, and see, uh, you know, you might find some more stories there. Great. Thank you.
3: Thanks, Jesse. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the full episode of Too Complicated for History. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and if you did, please leave us a review on Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on our social platforms at 2C4H underscore podcast, or check out the link in the description. This will keep you in the loop for show updates, new episodes, and exclusive content. Too Complicated for History is a podcast from Primary Source Media. Produced by Patrick Long and Lynn Price-Robbins. Edited and mixed by Curtis Fritsch. Opening theme music by Sheena Biratella.